Oh Lord, now we come to your word, which is everything to us. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So take your truth, press it in on our hearts, cut where we need to be cut, move us unto a greater level of holiness and obedience and passion for Christ. That's why we're still here, to bring glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask you do that work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with Moses was actually on the schedule for this morning, as you see in your bulletin. And on Thursdays, he was kind of taking the plunge uh, with whatever sickness he's got going on. We decided it would be best if we made a switch. And so, not having enough time for, to translate the rest of 1 Samuel 15... Um, and then and do all the work necessary that is required of exegesis and commentaries and cutting the word straight so that when I stand before you, I um, will not make a huge blunder before our God. I thought it would be best to just take one verse from the New Testament. The Greek is easier anyways. And declare that to you this morning. And I landed in Acts 20, 24. And if you could put a title to my sermon, it would be How to View Your Life in 2024. And there really is no pun intended because as I was sharing with my wife, hey, I think I'm going to go to Acts 20, 24. And I think my message will be how to view your life in 2024. I still never picked up on the, the pun that is there. And she's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so then I thought, well, now it's destiny. I have to preach that verse. <laughs> Which was great because it just pressed me on to study much harder in these last couple days. And so we have here how to view your life in 2024 from Acts 2024. I don't know if you've had this experience before, I'm sure you have, where you feel like, spiritually speaking, you're, you're kind of under the weather, somewhat foggy and cloudy, and um, perhaps you, you feel the water rising just above your eyelids, and, and you can't really see very clearly what's, what's going on in life. And then you... Look at a passage of scripture, you spend some time in prayer, and it's like the Lord in his kindness lifts you up out of the water, and all of a sudden you can see clearly once again. Well, that's what happened to me in this passage this week. As I was reminded and challenged, and confronted, and rebuked, 
and encouraged to remember why it is that we are here. Why am I still here? Why am I on this earth? God has saved me. He's rescued my soul. Why would I still be here? When when I could see the glories of Christ, if He would just take me home. Lord, here, to make much of the fame of Christ. He didn't leave us here for us, though there are many benefits for us. He left us here for Him. And as I considered the one of the greatest resolution statements found in the Bible, I was floored by the example of Paul to say, I, I do not care one ounce about my life but only that I would finish the course that God has set before me. And so, my request to you this morning is that you would simply humor me as I preach a message to myself. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is making his rounds on his third missionary journey. And and remember, he had spent three years in Ephesus. It was his longest stint of ministry anywhere. And he wants to give them one last charge because he thinks he's never going to see them again. And he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's about to face even more persecution as the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. Something that takes place before the close of the canon. The Holy Spirit would reveal things to the apostles very clearly what might happen in the future to them. And it is in this farewell address to the elders of the church in Ephesus that we find an excellent way to view our lives regardless of the circumstances that we might face in this world. An example or a model from Paul's view of his own life that really should be the way that we view our lives as those who are in Christ. And especially as we consider the truths that we've already sung this morning and the glories of the cross of Calvary and all that Christ has done for us, should then not our life be marked with such resolve for Him? And so how should we view our lives in 2024, but really every day? Number one, view your life with resolve. I'll just read the first two words of verse 24, and then we'll we'll look at the verses surrounding. You see there, Paul says, but I. As you know, contrasts in the Bible are often used to highlight something 
significant. And in this case, it is the resolve of the Apostle Paul to continue on his course of life, even though he knows he is going to face affliction, especially in the form of persecution. You see, starting in verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Notice what sums up his life there. Verse 19, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, he says, so you saw my life then, now, Behold, bound by the Spirit, and I do believe it is the Holy Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I... But I do not consider... My life of any account is dear to myself. The resolve that we see from Paul in the face of suffering is exemplary. And really, he understood what his life was going to be like from the very outset of his conversion. Upon the transformation of his heart unto saving faith, he knew he was a marked man. In Acts chapter 9 where Paul literally sees the Lord and the brightness of of Christ is is shown upon him and he, he comes to faith in Christ. In Acts 9 and verse 15, But the Lord said to him, now, this wasn't talking directly to Paul, but what would be revealed to Paul, But the Lord said to him, Go, Ananias, go, for he, referring to Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What an entrance into the Christian life. (laughs) I'm going to use you, but it's going to cost you. But I. (laughs) It seemed like affliction was around every corner of Paul's life as a believer. You can look at passages like 2 Corinthians 4 and and 2 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12 where where he demonstrates... Excuse me, and, and, and shows that all he did was suffer. From shipwreck to beatings. 
and, and the inward trial that was in his heart and his mind as he would see churches that he had invested the gospel into who were somewhat wavering and struggling, in particular the church of Corinth. But all the churches weighed heavy on his heart. And in all those passages where Paul speaks of his suffering there in Corinthians, he, he shows that it's his faith in Christ and obviously God's grace to that faith that moved Paul to keep on speaking regardless of the consequences. Like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. After he expresses that they're afflicted in every way and says that we are constantly being delivered over to death, he says in verse 13, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. He says, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that we who, or that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Faith in the promises of Christ. Faith in the hope of eternal life. Faith in the midst of true, of true persecution, trial and affliction is what moved Paul to say, we have this faith and so we keep on speaking. The very thing that's going to continue to get me in trouble is the very thing that I will continue to do because I trust the Lord. One of my favorite passages, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, and we have frequented this passage. And I love Paul's true joy that is seen throughout the book of Philippians and we see that because he's so centered upon Christ that regardless of the circumstances in his life, he, he, he just can't help but be overjoyed because he gets to be a mouthpiece for Christ. And there he's in prison in Rome. And he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Listen, I, this isn't necessarily the ideal circumstance for me to get to Rome, to be in prison. But God is using it as a platform for the gospel of Christ, which is the whole reason of my existence. He doesn't even mention what is happening to him. He simply says, my circumstances are being used for the glory of Christ. And it caught fire, not only in the Praetorian Guard, 8,000 men strong, knowing that Paul was there because of Christ. But outside of the walls of the prison or the house arrest, other Christians were emboldened by the courage of Paul to say, we're going to preach the gospel too even if it costs us the same thing. 
Some would preach Christ out of selfish ambition and do so with wrong motives. We don't exactly understand how that worked, but in some way they were using their words against Paul, even though they were preaching Christ. And Paul says, I just don't care what anybody thinks about me as long as Christ is preached. And that's why he would say in verse 18, what then? (laughs) Okay, it's causing me more distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul's joy was fixed upon his immovable Savior and his transcendent Lord. And so regardless of the circumstances, Paul was committed And even in our own passage in Acts chapter 20, as I already read for you the verses above, there Paul in verse 19 says, I'm serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And then in verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. My life was being threatened, but I did not shrink away. I kept preaching repentance To the very people who threaten my life and to you as well. I think of how easy it is for myself to be fearful of the unknown and how often that can cripple me. How many gospel conversations might I avoid? How often I might shrink back from the necessary communication that I must do in my home and in the church Perhaps just to avoid the conflict. It's always amazing to me when when I build up all this fear in myself, like what might happen. I don't exactly know what I'm afraid of, just not God in the moment. And then I just am faithful by God's grace and by long procrastination, and and then I, I finally do what I know I need to do, and it's like, Well, that wasn't too bad. (laughs) How very little backlash and affliction we experience in comparison when we think about Paul's life. We don't even know if there is going to be something dangerous on the other side. But Paul knew. Paul knew that he was going to experience affliction. That what he was going to do would bring about affliction in his life, and yet he carried on. Why? Why? Well, we know, really from all of Scripture, certainly the power and grace of the Holy Spirit in his life for each difficult moment that he faced. I mean, think about your own life in those times where you've stood for Christ when, when it may cost you something and you just go, man, I could not have done that apart from Christ. I, I just would not have been faithful to, the, to that if, if the Holy Spirit wouldn't have taken His word and given me great courage to do so. But for Paul, the reason why he would keep on going 
is because for Paul, it didn't matter what anyone else thought. He wasn't concerned with pleasing man or avoiding affliction. His sole purpose in life was to serve the Lord. And that's why he says that in verse 19. You saw how I was with you the whole time. Just serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Genuinely too, with all humility, with tears, with trials. Serving the Lord was the defining motive in Paul's life. He viewed himself as a slave to the Lordship of Christ. That's why he often refers to himself, Paul, slave of Christ. And the Lord was his governing thought. Whatever his master graciously demanded of him was his joy. The cause of Christ was everything to Paul. And that's the reason for his resolve. Paul says, the one thing I know for sure is that affliction and persecution await me in every city but I. And this is the type of resolve we want to have in our life, isn't it? We're here for one main reason. To serve the Lord. And no matter the cost, we want to discipline our lives around making much of Christ. Whether it costs us relationships with family or friends. I mean, Jesus even said in Luke 12 and Matthew 10, Hey, I I came to divide. (laughs) That for those who might live for Christ, it would cost them mother and father and relationships with those whom they love. Or whether it costs us free time or leisure or money. We want to be resolved to serve the Lord. We are here for Him. Think of Colossians 1, where Paul highlights the preeminence of Christ. There's no one like him. He's God. He's the firstborn, the the preeminent one over all creation. And then verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created... He's the agent of creation, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And just to to say it even further for the church, He's also head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For Paul, Christ had first place in his heart. Everything was centered upon Christ. And for us, there's no no greater joy than making much of Christ. What, What greater pleasure on earth is there than living in light of Christ's lordship and Christ's salvific work in our lives? That's why Paul would say in Philippians over and over, Rejoice in the Lord. 
Not just rejoice in Jesus, not, not just rejoice in Christ, though that is implied by saying the Lord, rejoice in Him and who He is in His person, but also rejoice in the reality that He is Lord. And true joy comes from recognizing your relationship to Him as Lord. Submission. And again, we know that it, this is not simply some elite willpower in Paul. That's why he spends so much time in his letters highlighting all that God has done for us in Christ. It's not just some elite willpower. This comes from somewhere in Paul. And we can have this kind of settled resolve. Because we've been transformed by the same glorious gospel, saved by the same glorious Savior, and empowered by the same Holy Spirit. And so though, though there is divine and sobering obligation placed upon us by the Lord of the universe, we not only have to serve the Lord, we have to, but we want to, and we get to, because there's no greater privilege Because our Lord is everything to us. Number two, view your life as expendable. Not only view it with resolve, but but view your life as expendable. Further in Acts 20, 24, Paul says, But I... But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. That that goes against everything in our culture, (laughs) in the world around us. And that goes against many mainstream Christian messages that you might hear. I don't consider my life of any account. The NIV translates this phrase this way, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. The ESV, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. And literally translated, you could could translate it this way, I do not consider my life worth a single word or thing worth mentioning. What? (laughs) Isn't self-preservation everything? Isn't that why I'm here? The, the, The American dream? You see, when it comes to fulfilling the call of God upon Paul's life, Paul says, my life is worth nothing to me. I'm not here to make sure I stay alive, he says. I'm I'm here to finish the course of life that has been assigned to me by my Lord. And so no matter the sacrifice, no matter the cost, I am all in. And you see just a a real deep-seated trust in Paul of his Savior. 
Paul's deep-seated trust in his sovereign Lord gave him courage to stay the course regardless of the results. This phrase, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, showed that Paul rested in the reality that he would not die a second before God's predetermined plan for his life. I encourage you, if you've not, to read through the Fox's Book of Martyrs. A little, a little hard in some places to understand some of the things, but not a single martyr, not a single minister of the gospel has died a minute early because of making too much of Christ or laboring too hard for Christ. Paul viewed himself as expendable, dispensable, replaceable, as able to be sacrificed, as as really insignificant to himself. He knew that if he died, the cause of Christ would go on and that God did not need him because our God needs nothing. He understood that his ministry was extremely important, but not because of who he was, but because of who Christ is. So what I'm about to say, hear me on this, okay? Listen, I do not want to minimize anybody's suffering. We experience real trial. Real affliction, real hurt. But there are times, if we're honest with ourselves, we make too much of our suffering. And I say that because God in His kindness gave us people in His Word who who suffered a lot, not to shame us and say, well, we haven't actually suffered (laughs) when we do, but to show us that you can even suffer more for Christ than what you might have suffered already. And your hope isn't just in the fact that other people may not have experienced just as much of a difficulty as you have, but rather that every Christian will suffer at some point for Christ so that Christ would be glorified in this world through you. Sometimes I think we can gravitate to our own unique trial in that moment, and get fixated on ourselves and wallow in pity. And when our suffering didn't start out because of our sin, necessarily some main sin that we did that caused suffering in our life, all of a sudden that temptation to make suffering all about us turns to sin. And we get caught up missing the point that Now, we're just struggling because all we're looking at is ourselves. 
And Paul had suffered enough, hadn't he? And then the Holy Spirit says, hey, by the way, you're going to keep going. And every city you come to, they're going to keep beating you. I think it's because we're too used to some of the comforts that we have experienced in this life. And so suffering is harder sometimes than it should be for us as Christians. Kind of a funny illustration. I don't know how many years ago, a couple of years ago, the electricity went out in hill roads and surrounding areas. And, you know, at the outset, it was like, sweet, okay, kids, get the, get the you know, the candles, the flashlights, and we're going to sit together in the living room, and we're going to talk and hang out. And after like 10 minutes, I'm like, what is going on in here? <laughs> we have got to get these lights back on, you know, in the 30 minutes and an hour. And all of a sudden, I started complaining, going, oh, man, I'm so glad I didn't live before electricity. This is unbelievable what's going on right now. But that happens to us at times. Little inconveniences that just, well, God in His kind providence uses to show, hey, here's what's in your heart. I love how Peter shepherds the flock of God that was scattered throughout Asia Minor because of persecution and as they were getting ready to undergo, if not had already started to experiencing some of the suffering that was happening because of Nero and his hatred of the church. But he says in 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be shocked. With affliction. Which comes upon you, why? For your testing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not, it's not a strange thing for us to suffer. And yet, I don't know if, about you, but sometimes I feel like perhaps I don't suffer enough. I don't know. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, he says, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with with exaltation. If you get to be persecuted for Christ, well then all glory be to God. And one day, you will be rewarded for that experience. Paul says, what is my life? What is it to me if I die for the cause of Christ? I'm reminded of how Jesus ministers to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John as we, for almost eight years, went through the Gospel of John here and we were taken to the heights of the glories of Christ. And for some weird reason, after the climax 
That, hey, I wrote these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All of a sudden, we're back to Peter in chapter 21. And Peter is, is, is overwhelmed by his sin, is focused on himself, and he simply says, I'm... I'm I gave up fishing to follow Christ. I'm, I'm going back. I'm just going back. And Jesus, in his loving, faithful, shepherding way that he does, comes to Peter and confronts him faithfully, lovingly, Three times to match his three denials of Christ. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, Peter can't point to his own life and say, hey, can't you see? (laughs) He points to the omniscience of Christ and says, you know. It's not a perfect love, but it's a real love. It's maybe not the best of all of your disciples, but it's true. I do love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. Restores him back to the ministry, but the conversation continues starting in verse 18 of John 21. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where, do you where you do not wish to go. Verse 19 explains verse 18. Now this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death John, uh, Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You're going to die for me. Follow me. Peter instantly turns around. (laughs) He's like, follow me. But Peter looks the other way for a moment. Looks at John. And says, what about him? (laughs) Is he going to die like I am? I love what Jesus says to him. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Verse 22, you follow me. I don't owe you anything, Peter. I don't owe you an answer. And it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. It doesn't matter how much you might suffer and how little somebody else suffers. It does not matter. You, Peter, follow me. Well, here Paul is just living that out in Acts 20. Uh, My life is nothing to me. Christ is everything. My life is nothing to me. There's so much to learn from Paul's statement here. 
For one thing, we see that self-preservation was not a top priority to Paul. It wasn't the main thing. The main thing in his life was not just to stay alive. Now, we're talking about foolishness here. and you know, Don't go sell all your guns or that sort of thing. Protection is important as husbands and fathers and mothers. We're, we're, we need to protect. You know, Paul wasn't married and so he didn't have a, a wife that he was thinking about in all of this. But Peter was. Peter was a married man. And he still was martyred. And so though there's not necessarily a one-for-one from Paul to us, the cost to die to self is still the main call upon our lives as disciples of Christ. We learn also that he understood that he was expendable. (laughs) The cause of Christ would carry on even when he passes away. I am not the end all when it comes to the cause of Christ. I say this facetiously, but I I say it regularly when I talk to other people. Hey, there's a reason God made me as a sidekick in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) I'm not the end all, not in the grand scheme of things. And not even in certain individuals that you might be investing your life in. Christ has chosen to use you as an instrument of righteousness in His hand. And He gets to decide how impactful or not you are as His instrument. Christ is not going to reward us based on results. But rather on faithfulness. Christ does not need you. Christ does not need Me. It is a grace gift to be used of Christ. You look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. He says, my ministry is a mercy to me. I'm simply a clay pot. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4. And and it's in this clay pot that the glories of Christ get to be revealed to this world through the preaching of the gospel. You and I cannot cause a single result for Christ. And so what we see here for Paul is just be faithful. Know that you are here today and gone tomorrow. So don't make this fleeting breath about you and your comforts and your legacy. Simply be faithful to Christ. We're here today, gone tomorrow, forgotten soon after that. Just be faithful to the point of death. Don't we see that in Paul's life? Don't we see Christ's call upon his disciples lived out in Paul? Matthew 16, 24, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Matthew 10, again, your love for me should be so, so evident that it seems like you hate everybody else around you in the sense of devotion to Christ that Jesus says. If you don't hate your own father, mother, or even your own life, you're not worthy of me. Faithfulness and a sacrificial mindset, even if it cost him his life, he would stay the course. 
This is what you would see in Philippians 2 when it comes to the church body considering others as more important than ourselves. You're here not for you, but for everybody else that's here for the glory of Christ. So don't look out for your own interests merely, but rather the interests of others. James Montgomery Boyce put put it this way. He says, one reason why many of us are not more effective in our Christian lives is that we do not have our priorities in order. Isn't it true that most of us value our lives far more than our witness? We value the praise of men far more than the approbation, the approval of God. View your life as expendable and spend and be spent for the cause of Christ. Number three, view your life as a commission. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Why? Why, Paul? So that I may finish my course, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Why did Paul not value his own life? So that he might finish his course. And I love the way that Paul owns the call that the Lord uh, Jesus has placed upon his life. Notice the first person singular here. Used over and over in this statement of resolve. You see that. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. This is personal to Paul. This was his responsibility This was his mission. Not that he chose for himself, but that the Lord Jesus gave to him. And he was going to carry it out, no matter the cost. To finish something is to complete it. To work at something until it is accomplished. To reach the goal that has been established. He wasn't going to give up even if he died trying. I love the word course here. It carries the idea of carrying out an obligation. This wasn't optional for Paul. He didn't see any way out. It was the Lord who assigned him to this task. And for Paul, the task, the mission, the course of life, the obligation that was set before him by the Lord Jesus was was everything to him. And it was the ministry of the gospel as an apostle to the Gentiles. Time is, has escaped us for us to go to show you how Paul owned this mission where he would say in Acts 9.15 he was told he would be an instrument to the Gentiles. In Acts 13.47 he was a light to the Gentiles. In Acts 22.21 he was there for the Gentiles. Romans 11.13 his ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, Ephesians 3.1 I'm a prisoner for the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2.7, I'm I'm an apostle and a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth here. But he also spoke to the Jews. He made it his custom first to go preach to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now that is not in particular the call of God upon our lives. We're not apostles. We do not have the same exact mission as the Apostle Paul did in that sense. Uh, Paul's mission was unique to Paul, but that doesn't mean that we aren't on a similar mission. 
I think of Paul's instruction to the Philippian church in Philippians 1, uh, 27 through 30. Uh, you can go back and listen to some of my sermons there. But, but the call upon their lives to live a Christ-centered, gospel-worthy life. And he says, how do you do that? By living as one for the cause of Christ in the church. You stand together on the truth. We stand on this book right here for Christ. And we live in real unity for the glory of Christ. You know Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, and the course of life and finishing has the idea of running a race. You know that passage. And I could quote it if it would come back to me, but I cannot. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You're in a race, and it's a marathon of sorts. And we are called to stay the course. And for the Hebrews, for these Christians, the persecution that they were experiencing, they were contemplating, man, maybe we should just give this thing up, go back to Judaism, and stop suffering for all of this. And the writer of Hebrews just keeps saying, look at Christ, look at Christ, look at Christ. And so many have gone before you, Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith. Stay the course. That's the call on our lives. You can be sure that you have been commissioned to make much of Christ. Christ didn't just save us for the sake of saving us. He did it to make much of himself as the one for whom all things exist. And the way that he does that is by leaving us here on earth to declare his excellencies. Finally, number four, view your life as a recipient, beneficiary, somebody who gets something incredible from God. Paul saw this course of life, this obligation that Christ has placed upon his life as a gift that he received from the Lord Jesus. And you see that that I may finish my course, my obligation, which is really the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Think of all that Paul had been through in his life and all that he was about to go through, and yet he saw himself as a beneficiary of the glories of Christ. I received this. The very thing that was causing his affliction was the very thing that brought him the greatest joy. To be sure, it was a great matter of seriousness to Paul. You don't just offer up your life as a sacrifice for something that isn't hugely significant. It was a solemn issue to Paul. He states that at the end of verse 24, I testify solemnly. But it was a solemnity that was received as a gift. Joy and seriousness go hand in hand when it comes to the cause of Christ. And while it is important 
not to view ourselves as important. It is vital that we understand the importance of the task that we've received. Yes, we need to get over ourselves, but, but we must never get over the significance of our Savior and the seriousness of the salvation message. So notice the reason for the positive perspective as a recipient that we see in Paul. It's to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What's this ministry? It's to testify solemnly, uh, to declare with sober mindset of the gospel of the grace of God. And what is the gospel? It's the good news. And what is it? the good news of God's grace? And so we come full circle in Paul's life. Why would he say, my life is nothing to me? Because he had received the glorious grace of God. He was so resolved. So willing to sacrifice his life. So passionately moved by one main thing, the good news of God's grace. Because it so impacted his own soul. Well, that's a hill worth dying on. That is something worth living for exclusively. Do you understand the grace you received? Do you grasp? The weight of your sin and the love of God? Well, as I look around this room, I, I sense that from knowing you. We deserved hell. God gave us grace in Christ. That is good news. And that is why you are still here. To lay it all out there on the line for the cause of Christ. Father, thank you for this clarion call upon our lives to live for the glories of Christ. And as we gather around this table this morning, Press it upon us even further. Oh, what Jesus has done for us. That we might ever live for him. Amen.